And so let's pray and then um, uh, we'll get back into Exodus. I'm excited to preach the end of Exodus 20. Father, thank you for the sweet time together. Thank you for the songs we sing. Lord, thank you that we can hide in you. Oh, Lord, we want to hide from a lot of things out there, um, but we hide in the wrong places sometimes. We need to hide ourselves in you. You're the cleft of the rock. And all your glory passes by us daily as we open your word and see who you are and revel in the fact that you knew us before the foundations of the world and you drew us to yourselves. And now we carry the greatest message the world could ever know. So Lord, what a blessing. What a blessing to serve with so many men and women in in ministry here and then partner with a church family, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that desire to uplift Jesus Christ. Lord, you said yourself, Jesus, that if you lift me up, I'll draw all men to you. To me. And so, Lord, we're here today, tonight, and tomorrow morning, and tomorrow afternoon, and whatever that may be, to lift you up because we know that's how you draw people to yourself. And so, Lord, thank you for this. May you bless the preaching of your word tonight. Give me strength to remember what you taught me this week and that I can convey that, Lord. And we'll be those who grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I can't help but study the Bible and constantly come to this conclusion. Scott, if you love God and you love Christ and you're captured with who he is, there's no sin in your life that can't be overcome. Do you believe that? I mean, it's an easy amen to say to, but (laughs) is that what's happening in our lives? And I thought long about this because he's going to give the answers to the nation, what they need in this text, and yet they are going to go and stumble so bad and so often and eventually go to captivity and completely fall apart. But yet, that's the truth. That's what, how we overcome our problems, our struggles, is knowing and loving a God who can, can take us through those difficult times. And, and then more than that, when we look into the eyes of our Savior through the Word of God, that brings us to repentance. You cannot help but look at the glorious person of Christ and not, if you truly are looking at him, you cannot come to a point where you see deficiency in your life, sinful deficiency at times. And so what a joy to study this. And it's one of the reasons you and I always have to be in the word of God. We put ourselves under preaching, but that is not enough. We have to be discipled and we need to personally be reading the Bibles because our Bibles, because it helps us. It helps us love him and not get caught and tangled in so many sins that trip us up in life. So uh, this, this text here in chapter 20, as he's finished the Ten Commandments, he's gonna return back to the narrative and the scene there um, before Mount Sinai. Um, And then what he's going to do is he's going to start to take these Ten Commandments, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, and he's going to apply them to everyday life. And you'll see these tremendous uh, truths that are given of how to manage society, how how to have life in community without offending one another and hurting one another, and how to operate together as a, a really a covenant community of people. And yet so often they could not do that. But the answers are here. And so though there are some things that we'll look at, there's some things the cross took care of that we don't look at those laws particularly that we're looking towards the cross. But then there's these laws that are given that are so good. If you run your neighbor's ox over, buy him a new one. I mean, it's, there's so much practical stuff in here to learn how to operate in society 
and yet we blame everybody for everybody's problems. And so we're going to learn a lot as we go through this uh, tonight. Well, look with me back at um, chapter 19. I just want to pick up the context of what's going on here. Chapter 19, verse 18. The people are now gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're fenced off from coming up to to him and yet they're kind of fenced in he's he's brought them into his presence God wants to speak to them their God Yahweh the God of Israel wants to speak to his people and so he's brought them to the foot of the mountain he does not want them coming up he does not want sinful men in his presence in that sense so he holds them back but yet he has them where they can experience him at some level look at verse 18 now the mount now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently and when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain Moses went up and then the Lord spoke to Moses go back down warn those people (laughs) so they did not break through Try to gaze at me, and, um, and, and that's the context of what's happening. So he goes back down, of course, and, and remember I told you, I think there's 20 or 30 times he goes up and down this mountain to talk to God throughout uh, Exodus here. Uh, but here he's, he's reminded that this is where I want. I want the people to hear this, but I don't want them too close, so go tell them that. And then he begins to give them the Ten Commandments, and that's what we spent the last I think six or seven sessions on is studying the Ten Commandments. I really enjoyed that series. I learned a tremendous amount from it. And, and how those things are still, these true commands still help us today. But now we come to the end of the Ten Commandments and we begin to pick up the narrative again in verse 18. So I want to give you a few thoughts along that line. Number one, cultivating a high view of God through his word. Cultivating a high view of God through his word. How high is your view of God? You say, well, my my view of God is high. How high is it when you're fighting with your spouse? (laughs) How high is it when you don't know how you're going to pay your bills? So, So what God wants us to do is cultivate, constantly cultivating through his word a high view of God. And this is what he's doing with his nation. And look at verse 18. This is the way he starts with them. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashing. Now notice we're backdropped into that narrative that's going on after these Ten Commandments. And the sound of trumpets and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Now, God didn't call the nation of Israel close to the mountain just to put on some kind of fireworks show. That's not what he's doing here. Notice that God gathers the nation so they can hear his voice. So they can hear his voice. See, God was speaking directly to the nation. Moses is supposed to teach them. I think a lot of times we read this and we think God spoke to Moses. Moses went and told them. That's not at all what happened here. They came close. God spoke to them. uh, And Moses was supposed to teach them. Let me prove that to you. Go to um, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is where the Ten Commandments are re-given to the nation as they prepare to finally go into the land after they've wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses is reminding them what God had said, and he gives a little more detail at times in this account as he prepares this really next generation. Remember, the older generation died because they didn't believe. So now he's got the younger generation ready to go into the land, and Deuteronomy is all about preparation. 
getting them ready to go to the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is a lot, a lot of theology proper, a lot about God and what he is doing. But I want you to understand that God was talking directly to the people. He wasn't just talking through Moses. He's talking directly to the people. Look at chapter 4, verse 10 with me. Moses recounting this, because he was there, right? Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, Darkness and cloud and thick gloom. Remember, this is over 40 years later, but it's just like it's just happened the way it's being reencountered. Verse 12 Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you. There it is. He's to teach. They heard teach you the statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going to possess. Just turn over the page to verse 32. Pick up the narrative again here as Moses continues to teach. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on earth and inquire from the one of the heavens uh, to one, excuse me, from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard like this? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to, tried to go and take for himself a nation within another nation by trials and signs and wonders and by war and by the mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and of great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know the Lord. He is God, therefore, there is, excuse me, there is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth he let you see great fire and you heard his words from amidst the fire. Because because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from them before the great nations, mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land of inheritance as today. Know therefore today and take it to heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. So you shall keep his standards and his commandments which I am giving you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you in full time. A couple more, turn over to chapter five, verse four. A little shorter passage here. Um, the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Um, verse 22 in that same chapter, 522. These words the Lord spoke to you all of your assembly on the mountain from the midst of the fire of the clouds and of the thick gloom with a great voice and he added no, and he added no more. 
He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And this goes on and on. And even as you get on to the nation, he'll reaccount this in other places. And, and there's one more place that you can go and look at Nehemiah chapter 9. When they've come back to the nation, the 50,000 have come back to the nation. They're rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. They're reminded that God spoke to them, not Moses. And I, I thought that was fascinating as I studied this, that that because you always kind of think Moses is the mediator, and he is, but Moses told them all these things that God said. No, he brought them close. They heard his voice. They heard his voice. And when you hear God's voice, and for us, that's through the scriptures, right? God doesn't need to speak audibly to us anymore. And those false teachers that are out there that are saying that they're wrong because that because that means our Bibles are not sufficient. So we have a sufficient scriptures. God now speaks to us. Every morning I get up and read my Bible and he speaks to me. He talks to me. And there's times I tremble as he talks to me. <laughs> Do you ever tremble when you read your Bible? And you hit a passage, you go, uh-oh, God's talking to me. And so we tremble at it. See, this is, a, this is acquiring a high view of God. Look, the American church has lost a high view of God. Because they have made church about them. They've lowered God down to be like them. To give them what he, they want. And that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to elevate him. Go back to verse, chapter 20, verse 18 there. He uses a word there. Um, in the English, we translate it perceived there. He said, all the people perceive the thunder and lightning and flashing and the sound of trumpets and the smoking mountain and so forth. Well, the idea here is it's raha is the, is the Greek, word, I mean the Hebrew word here, and it means to see with understanding. And, and so Moses is saying, you saw God. You saw what he was doing. He's not to be taken lightly. <laughs> you, you, you felt the ground tremble underneath your sandals as he spoke. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? When you think about that. And so this verb sums up that they had witnessed from, from that time they took their position at the foot of the mountains that God was speaking to them. And he speaks today, brothers and sisters. He speaks to us through his word. This, this, first, um, this first describes the impact of the Ten Commandments that God was not just giving them to Moses to give to them. God was giving the Ten Commandments directly to them. And in verse 18, it describes how the people were seized. Notice at the end of it, how they're just seized with involuntary, I don't know how to put this, but just physical trembling, right? And notice they kind of pull back, right? And, and when they saw it, they trembled and stood at distance. So they're, they're moving away. They're coming back from that boundary, that fenced-in area, because God is speaking, the almighty, holy, perfect sinless God, the creator of all things, who's always existed, is talking to sinful man. I mean, when I read my Bible, and I study this today, I go, Lord, I want to take your Bible more serious. I've been studying this for 40 years. I'm now, I want it more serious. <laughs> You're talking. Do we tremble at him sometimes? Or we go, oh, that was a good sermon, Pastor. Boy, you really nailed it. You know, it was God talking to you. <laughs> Do you see him high and lifted up, glorious in all that he is? Look, it wasn't only the people. Notice that Moses himself was highly affected by this. Take your Bibles and just turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I just want to show you this. It isn't just the people. This is Moses. Look at, look at the Bible says in this 
and it's, this is more recorded in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament, but here the writer of Hebrews inspired by God to tell us what Moses was going through. The whole context is that there is a better, there's a better heaven, there's a, there's a better place coming, there's a greater Mount Zion and a city of the living God that awaits us. And that's the context here, but listen to verse 18, Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that, you, that cannot be touched. Okay, now we know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about Sinai, and they could not touch the mountain. And, and to a blazing fire, and to the darkness and gloom and the whirlwind, or to the blast of the trumpet and the sounds of the words, uh, words which sounded was such that those who heard it begged that no further words would be spoken. We're going to see that in a minute. That's how powerful this is. So this is enough, God. Don't, don't talk anymore, right? And then verse 20, for they could not bear the command that even if a beast touches the mountain, it would be stoned. And then here we go, verse 20. And so terrible was that sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. This was a powerful scene, brothers and sisters. This is the almighty God in, in a, uh, some theophany type of existence before them displaying a portion just a very small portion of who he is and people are afraid and even the great leader Moses is full of fear and trembling Hebrews says turn back to our text and look at verse 19 with me and then it says uh, then they said to Moses speak to us yourself and we will listen but let not God speak to us or we will die. <laughs> this is how they come away from this, right? This is their takeaway. Oh, <laughs> Moses, we're good. you're good. You can talk to us. We don't want that anymore. That scares us. And I want you to think about this. When a holy God speaks, it stirs his people in a way that, they're, that they see their sinfulness. That's why when we read our Bibles, if we are just mundanely reading our Bibles or we're going to preaching or we're in a BFG or a community group or whatever we're involved in and we take that lazadaisical, we have not heard God speak. We have not heard God speak. Because anytime you come face to face with God, what do you see? You first see yourself. It's, it's, you look into that mirror, as James says, intently and you go, oh, <laughs> Now, by God's grace, we see a reflection of him making us more like his son, but when you come face to face with God in his holiness, we see our weaknesses, don't we? And we see such a need for them. And notice in verse 19 that they see the importance of Moses being a mediator between them and God. Now, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? And certainly, this is a reflection of Christ, right? Moses is a type. Christ is our mediator, Look, we're right in the middle of his death. We're going to see it this Sunday, and we're going to take communion right after we learn what it means when he said, it is finished. We're going to end with communion, and what a, what a, what a great time to celebrate the Lord's table and a powerful understanding of that. Look, he has to be that mediator. And, and so Moses is this human reflection, or what we call type here, but oh my goodness, do, they, do we need Christ to bring us to the Father? Do you dare walk in the presence of God as a sinner? Man. There's a day where all of mankind that were ever birthed in this world 
were ever conceived in this world will stand before an almighty God. And you're going to do one of two things. You're going to stand in absolutely fear of hell in front of him or you'll worship him. There will be no other ground. There'll be no other ground and, and, and we see some of this in this. And, and, and we see the reflection of the nation's heart here a little bit and a glimpse of their future. We don't want to deal with God. You do it, Moses. And that's a problem, Right? And though Moses is a type who's interceding from them, you begin to see their heart here already just a little bit. Well, well, we don't want to deal with God. I don't want to hear God's word. I don't want to read it myself. I'm good with going to preaching and have somebody else do that, but I don't want to deal with this. There's almost a bit of that when you come up against this. And we begin to ask the questions, what will they do with the word of God? What are they going to do with these great commands to not form images of God or bow down before something or burn your babies in Baal. What are they going to do with that? They're going to fail. Because they were not, and though they were afraid of it, they would not engage with God's word. And that's a problem. And too many, I think too often, too many uh, supposed Christians don't engage with God's word. They let somebody else do it. And they sit back. And they do have a lower and lower and lower view of God. And then he doesn't show up when they want, and he doesn't give them what they want. And pretty soon, their view of God has changed. See, it's easier to know God through someone else. Boy, that guy really loves God. I really like being around him because he loves God. When do we get close to him and tremble at him at times and and awe and fear and yet that mixture of Abba Father we can climb up in his lap as his children and plead with him of his grace and mercy in our lives that's the mark of a believer but I do believe Moses was the right man he was a mediator between God and, and, and Christ is our mediator as well and so we see how that is but how easy it was for them to reject God because they could go through Moses. And look, if you're trying to have a relationship with God through somebody else, you will reject him in the end. Isn't that the beautiful thing about a relationship with God? We have a personal relationship with God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a personal relationship. Go talk to anybody in the world, all the religions of the world, and talk to them about a personal relationship with God, and they'll draw back. They don't understand how you can have that. But we do. Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. What a great verse this is. See, Moses recognizes that the fear has gripped this nation of people. And he, and he believes two things here you can see in the text. One is he is striving to relieve them of the tension that they seem to be experiencing here. Right? Look what he says. Don't be afraid, for God has come. He's here. This is our God, the same one who brought you out of Egypt that defeated your enemies. Caused all the plagues and did all those wonderful things. See, God had entered his creation here. I think that's fascinating. God enters his creation in such a way that he could be perceived. Now you go, well, there was no form there, yes, because God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and truth. But yet he enters creation in some way that they could see him. And Moses is trying to say, this is an amazing thing. Do you understand the almighty God, the unseen God, has manifested himself to you in some way? 
For us, it's the scriptures. In, in fact, I, I would, I'll, I'll rest my life on it that we have way more than they have. We have Genesis to Revelations of the exposure of God to us and, and, and you can't get any better than the exposure of Christ because he is God. He's the ultimate radiation of the glory of God, right? Now, they experienced, um, their experience here with God on that day should have led them to faith and obedience. They should have said, okay, <laughs> the Canaan got, Canaanites got nothing on that. And yet, because they would not engage with him and believe his word, they fell away. Well, second, I think what Moses is doing in this verse here is he, he understands this overwhelming spiritual experience that's going on here, but he, he wants this to be etched in their minds. He knows what they have to do. He knows that God is leading them to a land flowing with milk and honey, but it's full of enemies. And if you get to the edge of that land and you don't remember this God full of fire and smoke and your feet are shaking, your ground shaking underneath your feet, and then you look into that land as those 10 spies do and said, oh, it's too hard, you certainly didn't remember this. <laughs> and isn't that true of us as believers? Sometimes as we get a little older, brothers and sisters, we forget the great experience of seeing God for the first time through Jesus. And the older we get, sometimes our faith is not as strong as it should be. And so we come up against something difficult, something the world has cast at us, something God has allowed to happen worldwide or just individually in your life, and, and we begin to fear and tremble and shake and not know how to handle things because we forget how high God is. Just maybe for a moment, we find ourselves losing our joy Notice at the end of verse 20, that little phrase, it says, so that you may not sin. See, this is what I keep telling. You know God. You want to know God. You want to increase in your knowledge of God. I promise you'll start to have victory over sin. It's a key to biblical counseling. You certainly have issues to deal with and there needs to be confession and repentance in that. But the whole goal is that you see God. And, and I love that statement at the end of 20. So that you may not sin. You get a view of God and his greatness and his glory. You go, God, please take this sin from my life. I don't want this any longer. When we come into the presence of God through his word, even today, it should continually develop this high view of God, high view of him, in awe of him. Does the word of God do that to you? I think for many of it does. It's one of the reasons we came here We found a, a group of people, a core of people that could, go, could get up and run. Um, we had spent the last 30 years dealing with struggles and trying to get small churches and church plants going, which we love that. But we've been through some hard times and, and we couldn't, we want to see God reach the world. We wanted to see God save the world. We, we wanted to see that and we we're so thrilled that God let us here because there was a core here. There's a core of people that said, we believe God's word. We believe his truth. We understand how he saves people. And that's what led us here. And, and I, I hope that's true. And this core is growing. God's adding to our numbers. He's growing. And if you're new here, we want you to understand this. We have this high view of God. Listen to how we write about him in our own doctoral statement. I was thinking about this today and I said, 
I wrote that. I helped write that doctrinal statement. What does it say about God? <laughs> and in our website, you have to click on it and the full one drops down. I almost think we should put the full one on the front page sometimes. But listen to this. We believe and teach that there is one God, infinite, self-existent, who exists eternally as three distinct yet inseparable persons known as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one in their unchanging nature, essence, and attributes. We believe and teach that, that each of the members of the Godhead has a distinct function in the eternal purpose of the Godhead, while at the same time possessing full deity, the quality of the Godhead, right? Each is equal, worthy of worship and obedience. Each is glorified by the work of redemption. We believe and teach that God the Father is the first person in the Trinity. He is infinite, self-existing spirit, perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. He is creator of all things and the only absolute, the omnipotent ruler in the, in the universe. He is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. We believe and teach that God's fatherhood involves both a, a designation within the Trinity and his relationship with humankind. As creator, he is father to all people, but he is a spiritual father only to those who believe in him through Jesus Christ. He has a graciously chosen from eternity past those whom he would have as his own. He saves from sin all who come to him through Jesus Christ alone, securing their adoption as, as children and making them fellow heirs with Christ. We believe and teach that God has decreed from his own glory all things that come to pass, knowing infinitely all things from beginning to end, he continues to uphold, directs, governs all creatures and events. In his sovereignty, he is, he is neither the author nor approval, prover of sin, but perfectly judges each person according to his or her own work, thus making people responsible for their own sins. That's just our statement right there in our doctrinal statement. And look, I remember writing this, how long it took us to write that section. Do you have enough paper and pen to write about God? I mean, we sing that song. If you, you know, if you had every every stick was a pen and every paper something scribe, you, you know, and the ocean was ink. You know, you could run out of ink to write about him. And writing doctrinal statements are 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 taxing because you're trying to explain God in a in a paragraph. But that's what we're after, brothers and sisters. High view of God, lift him up. Hey, Hayward and I meet weekly, and we talk about the music and. We, we, we take stuff out and add stuff in that, that says, wow, this, is what, this clearly delineates what we believe about God. Let's sing that. Well, I got it going. I'm never gonna get through this. Verse 21. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Deuteronomy 5 in this passage, it flows from that sermon, flows from four to five, tells us that the Lord commanded Moses to send the people back to their tents while Moses went outside the camp and up on the mountain to hear the word of God that he was going to tell the people. That would be the rest of the things that we're going to study here in the coming weeks. But what an amazing event. I, I was just captured with verses 18 through 21 in this high view of God. And I think this is what broke down with the nation. I know it broke down. And, and, and listen, it'll break down with our children if we don't hold a high view of God. If you fall away and, and live a life on a Sunday life that's different than a Monday life, guess what our children and our youth are gonna think about God? 
And so that's what happens when Christians get captured by the glory and person of the Godhead, um, Father, Son, and Spirit, and see the equality of, of the Godhead and yet understand him through these persons that are given to us to see him and grasp him. And when we, we see that, that transforms our lives. Second thought is not so much around the verses, but I want to kind of give you a summary of the things that are going to come. Exodus 20 here starting around verse 18, and then for the next couple of chapters through, actually chapter 23, verse 33, they called, later called the book of the covenant. And so these, these next set are, are, are the flushing out of thou shalt not steal. What does that look like with your neighbor's ox or donkey or people or whatever that? And so he flushes those out and we'll see some of that. But Exodus 24, 7 kind of gives you a summary. It says, then he took the book of the covenant, that's all that he's gonna write here, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. (laughs) Isn't that quite a statement? Oh yeah, really? Come up to the border. First big test. Come up to the border of Canaan. Yeah, those people make us look like grasshoppers. And they failed. But this section is an amazing section. I just want to give some thoughts that I pinned down about this next section as we work through it. Because I'm not going to deal with every verse coming through. If you've read through this part of Exodus and then part of Leviticus, quite a bit of Leviticus, and then even some of Numbers, it gets a little tedious, doesn't it? But what I want to do is, as we go through this, kind of sum up some of these things that are happening. So listen to some thoughts of the law and how it's going to go to the nation and how we can understand it. So this section here contains a a, a wide range of legislation, you could call it that, um, that gives details to the nation of how to live. So what he's going to do is he's going to set general principles which they're to govern the people. How, how to govern this great nation that's camped before Mount Sinai, how to help them. And he's going to take the Ten Commandments as the overarching truth, and all the legislation is going to come from that. How to deal with your neighbors, how to deal with slaves, how to deal with, with property rights, and all those type of things. Now, this is where further instruction just gives so much application to it. I promise you, as we go through this in the, in the coming weeks, you'll go, man, if our, our country would only do that. You're going to say this over and over. Man, if our country would only do that. There's just basic good laws for society. And, and they've been abandoned now because of pressure and, and perception and all the things that are going on in our country. You're going you're to be amazed that if we would just obey God, and that's really what our nation was founded on. And I don't believe all the founding fathers of our nations were Christians. Many of them were just deists. They believed in a higher power. But they believed in these principles, And our nation was set up that way and we've strayed from them. Some of the details are easily connected to to some of the laws. You'll say, oh, wow, that's thou shalt not steal. Oh, that's that's real clear there. And others are a little more difficult. We'll have to work a little harder on that. But what is recorded, it bears a mark that God gave gave it to Moses and Moses gives it to the people. Now, what's super fascinating in this book of the covenant, this next couple of chapters, is God gives case laws before there's a case. Isn't that incredible? You're going to read case laws that haven't happened yet. So he'll give, an, he'll give a solution. He'll, he'll give a scenario of something that happens. Your, your cow gets loose, cracks through your neighbors, and eats all his winter food that he had stored up for his own family and for his own. Well, what are you supposed to do? Well, sorry about that. No, there's restitution that needs to be made. And so he gives a case law of that happened. So when that happens, because it's going to happen, right, 
The bull's going to go through the fence and tear everything up sometime. If you've been around cattle, that's what they do. Um, and, and that's the problem. So you have to make restitution. And these laws are set there so the people know how to govern themselves. And he actually gives case law before there's the case. Now, certainly there were cases, right? They lived in Egypt for a long time. They're in the land of Goshen, and they started with 70 members, right? And by the time they come out, we know they're somewhere between two to four million people. So they had issues as they tended farms and animals and things like that. They also were around society, right? There was other nations, and they've seen how nations act. But I think what's so unique about God's law here versus the law of society. The law of society were, were very, very different in two things. One, when we read God's law, it'll always talk about obeying it because he did these things for them. So there's a motivation for obedience. And then one thing you'll see as we go through this is he puts a high view of human life. He puts a high view of human life where that was not the case in the surroundings. Well, sorry, your neighbor got run over by my ox. Good luck with that, you know. Um, he, if you hurt a neighbor, if you take a life, I mean, you're gonna watch this all the way through. He protects human life greatly. What are we doing today? <laughs> We've abandoned that, haven't we? Um, and uh, so you'll see that as we go through those things. The, another thing that he does that's really fascinating is um, he sends Jethro in back in uh, Exodus chapter 18 to come and help him set up judges. And I, and I was thinking about that. Pastor Brian G., I don't know if you're where you're at here. Um, G and I were emailing him not too long ago when we were getting ready to vote for judges because, you know, I'm studying this a long ago. Man, judges are really important. Put one in before the election, please. But anyway, um, <laughs> they're extremely important to the, to the societal health of a country. And so Jethro comes along and says, hey, Moses, why are you judging this entire nation? This is crazy. You're going to die doing this. Find godly men and put them in place. And so finally Moses does that, of course, and they get some, he gets some relief, and now there's balance and fair and equity, equity, equality in, in, the, in the country and justice, and those things start to happen. And so he does that for them. You know, one of the things that's fascinating, and I, want, I don't want to wait on this, I'll probably get into this a little bit, is slavery. And of course, right now, uh, Christians are being attacked because we don't, we don't stand against God in, in the view of slavery in the Bible. And I don't know if you've been following a lot of this, but um, if you want to get updated on this, talk to uh, Pastor Paul. He'll help you with the, some of the things that are going on. In there. But there's a huge attack against the church and even God on his view of slavery. Well, you know, slavery is a result of sin. And we'll study this a little bit as we go through these laws. You'll see that God is like no other country. You don't want to be a slave in Canaan. You, you're hosed, not only you, the generation after you, the generation after you, and the generation after you, and forever the generation after you. Not so in Israel. At six years, their slaves were to be set free. Now, and you can go, well, slavery is, is a terrible sin. Yes, it is a terrible blight on our country. But slavery is a result of a sinful people. Dark and hardened, sinful hearts. It's not God's fault. God's actually showing how to have grace in it. <laughs> and, and, and it's amazing how he does that. Oh, and then we're going to see where the slave says, you know what, I love my master. I want to serve him. And, and there's a whole section of how he can, he can be labeled and, and marked as a, a slave forever. And this is the term that gets brought over into the New Testament where Paul says, I'm a bondservant. 
And you'll see where they put their ear on a doorpost and drive an awl through it. Um, and it's not for being cool. Uh, it's, it's for, that says, I belong to my master forever. As long as I live, I belong to him. I love him and I'm dedicated to him. You know, see, that doesn't get brought up in a lot of these things, what, what's going on in society. And so God's gonna deal with that. But we're gonna see slavery's a result of human sinfulness. And yet God shows how to have grace even in the midst of dark slavery and difficulties. Now, much of the standard of justice that God lays down in these coming chapters is, is very applicable to our, our situation. And, and of course, societies and cultures and economic situations change, but the underlining standard of fairness and justice you'll see is reflected. And if we do things God's way, great things happen. You can have a good society. But, it's one of the things that we must see is the cross changed a lot. So not every law that you look at in the Old Testament is for us. It's given to the nation. They were to come and hear God speak. And the cross solved some great things. And it solved the Sabbath and solved other things like that. And so the cross is, is wonderful. And the more I study this, I go, man, I'm really glad I'm on this side of the cross. And we'll, we'll learn that as we go along. So... Um, this helps us understand how to deal with certain laws. And the problem, if you don't have the cross in sinners, we go back, and this is what happens to too many you know, dear friends who kind of get, try to go kind of, I want to be kind of a Jew and I want to be a Christian, and they kind of get caught in that, is they indebitably fall into legalism. Because the cross helps us. The cross helps us balance out these laws of the Old Testament to make sure that we're, we're not putting ourselves back into some kind of standard to be accepted by God. It's so easy. One of the dear sisters, we were sitting having dinner with her tonight, and she's, we were just talking about grace and the preaching of Christ and so forth, and we had a great conversation. She goes, I, I can just, I can, give me 10 things to do. I'm just, I'm just built that way. And I think a lot of us are, right? We, I did that. I read my Bible. I checked this. I checked that. We, we just have this little list built in our heads, and it's so easy for us to do that. But see, the cross helps us look at this and see God and his graciousness and how we can live and glorify God with our neighbors and, and show kindness and balance and fairness with them. And, and, and the cross opens that up far more than what they had opened to them. All right. Um, last thought with a couple of points underneath it. God desires um, the response from his people. This is a little fascinating passage of scripture here. Um, to, to complete out verse 20, he gives, he gives a reaction of the people and then he gives the desired outcome that God wants. And this is kind of like a little, these last few verses of chapter 20 are a preamble to this, to this um, book of the covenant, right? So look with me at three thoughts here. The personal encounter with God. Look what he does first with him in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen and have, uh, you, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. So this is a reminder, and Moses is supposed to say, look, I'm your mediator, and I'm here to remind you that God is talking to you. The God, the only God, the, the true almighty God is speaking with you. And though it was Moses who was speaking to them in his coming, this coming um, book of the covenant here, it's God who spoke verbally to them. They heard the voice of God, and he wants them to remember that. You've had a personal encounter with God. Now, I, I think that's so important as, as Christians. You and I have had a personal encounter with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been accepted into his family through Christ. 
You have heard him speak to your heart through the word of God, and you've heard him, and you're now accountable to that. And I think that's a beautiful transition there that we, that we all can say that. We've heard God through the word. But there's, there was an, another necessity or another necessary aspect to this experience. God wanted him to see just a portion of who he was. The Bible says they were terrified and they were overwhelmed with the presence in the, in the mountain with fire and smoke and rattling of the earth. And, and he wanted them to understand that there's no one like him. There's no one like him. So, so all the theophanies that you can see through the scripture where God in some form comes, whether it's in the trees of Mamre and, and it's a man um, who uh, is probably the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe, in Genesis 19 who, who shows up. All those theophanies or any, anything that he does, a burning bush and here on the mountain, these all, they, they show a portion of the living God. But, but, God, but what Moses is trying to say You've not seen fully. You've just seen just a touch of who he is. And, 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 and then think about us. When Hebrews says that Christ is the radiance of his glory. And listen to these words. The exact representation. John says that, that you know Christ. You know God through Christ. There's no other way to know him. He is the understanding. He is the exegesis. Is the idea of the word of God. And so he has come, he was the word, he was with the word, and he is the word, and he was the word, is the idea of that, so he is God, and so we know him through that. And so there's a personal encounter here, and that's such an important thing. So Moses reminds them that they themselves had heard God speak to them. And then they, they could never doubt that God actually communicated to them. And that's why, I, I just read you a portion of scripture. There's so many more in the passage where it says, remember God spoke to you at the mountain. Remember that God spoke to you at the mountain. And I think you and I have to be reminded that as God talking to you, you remember he has spoken to you through the word. And so there's personal encounter with Yahweh. Second, there's no, no reproductions of God. Look at verse 23. You shall not make another, other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourself. Now, verse 23 here is an amazing. Having this experience of this real divine visitation of God, right? He comes down and, you know, lights on this mountain and then lights the mountain. And, and, and they should know that it was impossible for any human to, to reproduce an image. And we talked about this when we were studying this command. What are you going to make him like? So, so. Here Moses is telling, before they get into all these case laws and all this is going, is that there's no comparison to them. And it's an absurd to think that you can whittle something or carve something out of gold or something in order to represent him. And that's what the end of verse 23 says. No matter how beautiful or how costly stones you could take as a human and mold something, they still fall infinitely short of the glory of God. And yet, what do they do? It does not take them long. In fact, it was happening before this. Remember when Rachel comes, leaves, and uh, you know, her dad's chasing them across there, and he hide, she hides the family idols? The idol worship has been part of their world. And he's reminding them, this has, this has nothing to do with us. What, will you do? what are you going to craft me into? And infinitely short of a living reality of this transcendent, this unequaled God. And then third here, in our last thought here, um, the right approach to God. Look at verse 24 with me. You shall make an altar 
of earth for me. And you shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I, ca- where I cause my name to be remembered. And I will come to you and bless you. So now God's setting out this clarity of how he is to be worshipped. This is the right approach. This is how I want you to come to me. I'm the God of the fire and the smoke. You've seen a little bit of me. You've got a little tiny taste of me. Here's how I want you to come. And this description starts to flush out this instruction. In later course, they're going to have temples and priesthood um, and, and garments and all that to help them. But, but right now, he wants it done this way. And so verse 24, there's a command to make an altar of earth to God. And it's not abundantly clear what that looks like. I don't know if it was a mound of dirt at first or dried bricks or some stones they found along the river or what it might have been. But the point is that God did not want an altar to be made an idol. Whew. How many times have people made the church an idol of some sort? Where God is to be dealt with, sin is to be dealt with, where his word is to be taught sometimes. You don't know how many churches split over the color of carpet. Choir ropes. Chairs. Who gets to teach this and that? People get mad all the time and leave because what has happened is they have now idolized something that was meant to understand God greater. And so he's warning them of this. And the altar signified a place where animals would be slaughtered as an act of worship, a substitute. That was to be a reminder that you're a sinner and for a short time, I'm gonna be satisfied. I'm gonna hold my wrath off because this animal is gonna take the wrath instead of you, this clean animal. Notice he even mentions clean animals. There's sheep and oxen in here. And they were to burn these animals, have them totally consumed on this altar. And so they would just temporarily hold off the wrath of God. And then on top of that, they're gonna be told to take portion of that animal and, and eat it to show they have fellowship with God. It's an amazing thing he did with them. All temporary, do this year after year after year till the final lamb comes. It's an amazing thing. And yet, guess what their tendency would do? Make a great altar and worship the altar. And that's what happens. That's exactly what happened um, in many places. At the end of verse 24, he says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. See, the point is to the fact that since worship, a real sincere worship, whenever it takes place, will focus on the character and person of God, not on the, the symbols of all those things. And yet that's what they get carried away. Notice he says, my name, wherever my name, that's God's character. And if we, we see this with the patriarchs, when they, when they travel, all in Genesis, they, when they made an altar, they just grabbed some stones, whatever they had, they made them, they piled them up, they burned offerings, and they just worshiped God. There was nothing about, the altar was never talked about, they just piled stones, sacrificed a lamb, and, and prayed to God, and, and honored him for what they had done. That's, that was what they wanted. Now look at verse 25 with me. If you make an altar of, of stone for me, you shall not build it out of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. Now again, these uncut stones uh, would be a deterrent to making it an idol. See, the Canaanites had what they called dressed stoned altars. Their altars, remember, Satan always mimics everything God does and then uses it as an idol to pull people away, right? So across the nation, Many false teaching churches meet every day that don't believe Jesus Christ is the only way. That's a false teaching church. 
Any church that doesn't declare Jesus is God and he's the only way to the Father is a false church. And they meet and they do the same thing. They sing some songs, they get together, they do all that stuff. They mimic it. They mimic what God set down for his people. Well, the nation of Canaanites did that too. But they took altars and they dressed them up in stone. You'll still find places where they have found these altars. And guess where the altars are? Way up there. (laughs) Huge steps going all the way up to them. The altar had become a point of worship for them. And God says, do not make this altar pretty (laughs) in that sense. There doesn't be uncut stones stacked there. He has a plan later for the tabernacle when they're settled in and for the altar there. But even it, think about the altar. It was covered in gold at some points and had some horns on it. But can you imagine how many animals died in that thing? It was not something to be worshipped. It was something to lead you to the worship of God. And then finally look at verse 26. is the amount of time. And you shall go up. And you shall, excuse me, you shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will be exposed. Well, again, the Canaanites, which were the arch enemies of Israel and a problem forever. um, And they finally, uh, still at the end of Israel, never really quite wiped them out. But they practiced immorality as they worshiped their gods. That was what they did. And so altars were elevated to these extreme high positions and then altars were used for cultic rituals that included nudity and sexual immorality. And God wanted no trace of that with his people. No trace of that. And he still doesn't want that today. And, and here this is an interesting verse. I don't know if you've ever seen this. But human nakedness since the fall has been a sign of humiliation and disgrace and immorality. It, it's reserved for that one person that God gives you. It's for oneness. It's not for anything else. And, and yet the religions of the world and the world is just fascinated. One of the greatest industries in our nation is pornography. Billions of dollars spent on it. Go study it. I mean, well, don't go study it. Believe me. <laughs> it's, it's just destroying homes, right? It's destroying. How many times as pastors we've dealt with, with men and women caught in it? And so he warns them of this. You'll never see me clear when your mind is polluted with immorality. You'll, you'll always see God as bad and not good. Or you'll be terrible afraid of him and you're never going to want to deal with him. You'll want to go live in your tent because you will never want to be in his presence when you have the sin of immorality sunk down into your heart. So those, were, those who were to appear before God in his altar were to be dressed appropriately. And we'll, we'll, we'll just, we're going to skate through some of this because it's very wordy and rep- repetitive as we get through some of all these. But you'll see the dress. And even when you study the dress of the priest, there were even undergarments that, so he, that was hidden. And when they went to the altar, even when they had to bend over, there was, there was modesty that was there. And it's one of the things that's telltale sign of of often our hearts with God is what we think about these type of things. What the world loves, do we love? It's, it's, you have to examine your heart on these things. And it isn't, look, you can start going from here, and I know people go, you got to wear this and skirt hems this and hair off the ears. I mean, that's what I, I was raised with all that stuff. And all those boys that I got raised with and all that, they all fell away. And I had my own struggles because I battled through legalism, what, trying to be accepted because of the way I dressed or the way I wore my hair or whatever. Look, brothers and sisters, love God and you'll do what's right. It's not that difficult. 
you'll have a conscience that's pricked by the Spirit of God because you know the Word of God and you know how you want to interact with the opposite sex and, and a woman or a person that's not, you're not married to and you'll know how to handle that and you don't have to set up a, all these rules and stuff like that because you love God and, you, and that causes you to love your spouse and, and the people around you and you won't fall into such pitfall of sin that so many do. Love the Lord. See, there's always joy in coming to God his way. Not just salvation, but every day. Coming to God, believe his word. Brothers and sisters, he has spoken to us. We have way more than the children of Israel had. You can say, well, that was a pretty cool lightning show. Nothing compared to this. We have it all. Everything we need to know that God has chosen to give us is right here. I don't need anything else. I don't need him to speak out of the clouds to me because I don't know if that was the food I ate this morning or what. There's no way to know. This is it, right here. Put your faith in God's word and our God who loves us and is infinitely greater. Have a growing high view of God, amen? Father, you are a great God and we thank you for the display that we see on that mountain, fire and smoke and trembling. It is awesome to think about it, Lord. But yet... We see you through Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, gave us a full view of God. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. We have so much more. And yet, Lord, we let the world tiptoe into our lives and into our homes Father, help us. Bring conviction to us, Lord. Help us have a high view of God. High view of our God and Savior who loves us and gave himself for us so that we can live for him. Lord, thank you for all these folks today. Thank you for bringing Gina and I here. We give you all the credit. Thank you for the men that I serve with as elders. Thank you for a dear body of Christ, members of the body of Jesus, the body of Christ, the church, who we share this ministry together, Lord. Lord, give us another year and another one or whatever it is till you come back. May you find this church running hard, Lord, when you show up. We'll give you the praise for all that. In Jesus' name, amen.